Well, I got to tell you, family, I miss you dearly. I'd like to have lots of hugs. I can't imagine what kind of crowd were waving the palm branches for Jesus 2,000 years ago, but it couldn't have been any better looking than those, the one we just saw this morning on video. And uh, I've had, already had seven people ask me this morning, are you going to preach in a t-shirt? And there's only 10 people here. So I'm going to tell you about the, the, the t-shirt. Brenlin, uh, and, uh, Brenlin Shine and her mom brought me this t-shirt back from Hawaii and practiced social distancing, left it on my porch last Friday. It's got one of my favorite scriptures, Micah 6.8. And I said, I'm going to preach in this Sunday. So thanks, Brenlin. Here I am in my t-shirt. I love it. Some of you probably remember Life Magazine. It first came out in 1883, so it was around a long time. Big magazine. Probably Melvin Williams, the only one in the church here that would remember the first issue. But anyway, the last issue of Life Magazine was April 20th, 2007. This was around 130-some years. And I bring it up this morning because in about 2005, they had an issue that Bob Russell talked a lot about, had a picture of Jesus on the cover. I remember it, probably some of you do. And superimposed under the picture was the caption, Who Was Jesus? And the subtitle read, Solving the Mystery of the Identity of Jesus Christ. And the article was filled with all kinds of opinions. There was some classified Jesus as a good moral teacher. They said he started a world religion and uh, should be respected like Muhammad or the Dalai Lama. Others in the article suggested he was a self-deluded madman like Jimmy Jones, who uh, claimed that he could do supernatural things and actually uh, convinced several people to die for him. And then also in the article, there were several evangelical Christians like us who claimed that Jesus is the Son of God and died and rose again for the forgiveness of our sins. And since we know that, based on that, the real question is not who was Jesus, but who is Jesus, because he is alive today. And boy, oh boy, aren't we glad that that's the truth with all the stuff going on. But you know, it's a good question, whether you ask who was he or who is he, because when you think about it, it dramatically changes how you live, how you think, your behavior, and those kind of things. Let's say that you go to the airport to pick up a relative, and you're going to meet him out front. So you pull up the curve, and you wait for him. Now, if you're waiting for my mother-in-law, you're going to be waiting a long time, and you're going to be praying that she finds the right gate. I love you, Pearl. Love to see you. But anyway, you're sitting, and you're waiting uh, for your relative, and you hear this knock on the window, and you look out, and somebody says, hey, you're going to have to move the car. Oh, question, are you going to move the car or not? Well, it depends on who's asking. You know, if they don't have any authority, if you look out the window as a friend of yours, you're not going to go anywhere. But if you look out the window and the guy standing there has a blue uniform on with a badge and a gun, you're probably going to move. The identity of the policeman is going to dictate your actions. But there's also a third alternative. Let's say you hear the command and you look out the door and it's Lucas Tate. And Lucas Tate is a friend. He's also a policeman, but he says, hey, you're going to have to move your car. This is for taxis only, but if you pull around a corner there, there's a spot with my name on it. You're welcome to park there. The fact that it's Lucas and he's your friend, you're still going to have to obey, but you're going to obey in a much different way. And my point is, if we conclude that Jesus is just a good man, then we really don't have to follow him, and we can just live any way we want to. We also don't have to worry about the Bible. That means there's no absolute standard of right or wrong. But it also means that there's absolutely no hope for life eternal. On the other hand, if we believe that Jesus is the Christ and he is the Son of God, then we're going to obey him. Maybe out of fear in the beginning, but eventually 
we'll see him like we see Lucas Tate, a friend who has always uh, our best interest in mind, graciously looking out for us. At the end of the 19th chapter of Luke, uh, beginning around verse 28, so if you get your Bibles at home, open them up. That's where we're going to be looking this morning, Luke 19, verse 28. We see three scenes, different scenes of Jesus in the last days of his life that clearly show his identity and his authority, and I think it will change the way we behave. Here's the first one. I want us to see Jesus as a humble king, verse 28. After Jesus has said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, find a colt tied there which has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, tell them the Lord is in need of it. Now, this passage is probably titled in your Bible, Triumphant Entry. It's what we commonly call Palm Sundays, what we're celebrating today. And the atmosphere in Jerusalem was intense. People were fired up because they expected that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. And they also expected that he was going to come politically and set things right. He was going to overthrow the Roman government and put Israel back in charge the way they had counted on that. And at the same time, Jesus' enemies were mounting up their final offense against him. They were planning on assassinating him after the Passover. So there's a lot of things going on during this day. And you would think, if you had a price on your head like that, you wouldn't come into town in broad daylight. You'd think you'd want to sneak into town. But Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem that day as boldly in broad daylight as he possibly could. And he came during the Passover when there's tens of thousands of visitors there. And he also came riding on a donkey, which made it very clear to everybody there that he wasn't, in fact, the Messiah. Zechariah had predicted years ago, and they knew it, that see your king comes to you, righteous, having salvation, gentle, riding on a donkey. So Jesus came in to make himself the grand marshal of this parade, and he was daring his enemies to act. He's deliberately instigating a showdown. By the way, do you all know the difference between an outlaw and an in-law? Outlaws are actually wanted. William Barclay said, it is breathtaking to think of a man with a price on his head, an outlaw like this, deliberately walking into the city in such a way that every eye is fixed on him. It's impossible, he said, to exaggerate the sheer courage of Jesus on this. I think he's right. This is bold. Now the disciples found the colt, just like Jesus said they would, and they put a colt on him, and they put Jesus on him. Now, we also got to remember that during Jesus' time, a donkey was not a lowly beast of burden like we see him today. A donkey was a very practical and very respected animal. Kings rode them all the time. In fact, if a king rode into town on a horse, it was a declaration of war. If he rode into town on a donkey, it was a declaration of peace. And so here we have the Prince of Peace humbly riding on a donkey into town. And this crowd is fired up. I mean, they are ramped up. They know what all this means. Verse 36. As he went along, people spread their coats on the road, and when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen done. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. By the way, I just always think it's strange that when the angels announced Jesus, they said, peace on earth and glory in the highest. I don't do what you want with that. It's, It's funny how they turn that around a little bit. But they're ramped up. This is also, by the way, the only time I've found in the Bible where Jesus actually permitted a a public demonstration on his behalf. 
And he did it for a couple of reasons. Number one, to fulfill uh, prophecy. And number two, to, uh, to force the hand of his enemies. Remember, they weren't planning on killing him until after the Passover. But Jesus knew that God had ordained before the beginning of time that he would be the Passover lamb. And so this is in Jesus' timing. Remember, he said, my hour has come. Verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I mean, it's unbelievable, Jesus, that they're yelling, Hail to the Messiah and hail to the King. I mean, this is outrageous. And I love what Jesus said in verse 40. He said, I tell you the truth, if they keep silent, the stones will cry out. In other words, this is all true. How would you feel about that? How would you feel if I said, you know what, when we finally get to come back together, which I hope is soon, uh, my first Sunday when I come down the aisle, everybody's going to stand up and yell, Yay, Jimmy! Yay, Jimmy! Jimmy for president! You'd say, what are you, an egomaniac? I mean, what's wrong with you? But Jesus right here, he's welcoming this praise. What if I was to say to you, I was alive before Christopher Columbus discovered America? You'd say, you're a lunatic. But Jesus said very clearly, before Abraham was, I am. What if I came in here today and told you, I've never sinned. Not one time, I've never made one mistake. You'd say, Cain, you're a liar. I played golf with you. And then you bring in some of my family and some of my church friends and the staff here, maybe some college roommates and some high school teammates and my first couple of girlfriends, and they'd say, oh, no, he's a sinner. <laughs> I can verify that. But Jesus said, no one can accuse me of sin. What if I was to say to you, if you've seen me, you've seen God? You'd say, you're crazy. But Jesus said very plainly, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How about if I was to say to you this morning, Go ahead and kill me. I'll just come back to life in three days. You'd say, call the wagon. The guys with the white jackets, tell them we have a pickup at 6510 South Rockport Road. Tell them to hurry. But Jesus said exactly that. He said, I'll be in the ground for three days, and then I'm going to come out. And he did. And the Bible says it's because of these things that his enemies began to try even harder to kill him because he was equating himself with God. I mean, make no mistake about it, family. Jesus was no normal human being. He was either the son of God like he said he was, or he was the biggest con man ever. And by calling ourselves Christians, we're affirming that we believe he is the son of God, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And since Jesus is God, he has the power to save us from our sin and death. He has the power to give us inner peace during all this turmoil. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, the neat thing about Jesus, he never flaunts his power. He doesn't force anybody to acknowledge that he's king, not yet anyway. He humbly invites us to make him the king and Lord of our lives. But he never operates on pride. I, I, was, uh, I got a phone call from Carl Dad last week, and he said he was so proud of himself. And I said, well, that's good, man. What are you proud of yourself for? And he said, well, you know, we're in this lockdown time in our house, too. And he said, I've got one of those jigsaw puzzles, and I put it together on my kitchen table. It only took me two weeks. And I said, well, why in the world would, that, would you be proud of that? And he said, duh. It said right on the box, two to four years. <laughs> that's crawdad. You had to play cards with him. But my point is, Jesus didn't operate with that kind of pride. He was so humble. He didn't flash his credentials. He never pointed a gun at somebody's head and said, now you be baptized. Now you go to church. Now you raise your kids right. Now you read the Bible. Now you be faithful to your mate. He could have. All authority in heaven and earth belonged to him. But he never did that. He humbly invited people to submit to him. He was always about our free will. Always loved Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. 
Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I'm gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. He's a humble king, Jesus is. He's king though, make no mistake, but he's very humble. Secondly, we see Jesus as a broken-hearted Savior. This is so powerful. Listen to this text, verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. Weeping over the city of Jerusalem. Now, this is kind of strange because this is a huge coronation celebration service, and he's weeping. I mean, you never see the President of the United States sobbing at the inauguration or, you know, the winning pitcher of the World Series going in the locker room and breaking down. And so here you have Jesus. He's weeping. Everybody else is celebrating. Why is that? Well, it's pretty simple when you think about it. He really is God in the flesh, and he saw what was coming. It was a disaster. He writes in verse 43, The days will come, he said, upon you, when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls, they'll not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming. Now, of course, history points that that is true. About 35 years later, having rejected Jesus as their Messiah, Israel began to revolt against Rome themselves. And after three small skirmishes, Titus came in and locked down the city for 143 days. No food, no water. And at the end of those 143 days, he, he attacked the gates of the city and leveled it. 600,000 Jews, men, women, and children. The worst in history besides the Holocaust. And Jesus saw all that coming. And so, I, and so while everybody was lined up and down the streets yelling, hail him, hail him, he knew within just a few days they were going to be screaming, nail him, nail him. And within just a few years that the entire city would be leveled and the beautiful temple would be taken apart by stone by stone. And so Jesus wept. The Bible says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. I got to tell you something, family. When people reject Jesus as their Lord and Savior, it literally breaks his heart. J. Wallace Hamilton tells the story about a preacher and his wife who had an only son, and he was such a good boy growing up, but when he became a teenager, he just turned crazy, just got this rebellious streak, and they said everything they tried just pushed him farther and farther away. He was just getting crazier and crazier. And, and one night, uh, late on a weekend, they were sitting up waiting for him to come home, and it's 2.30 in the morning by the time he showed up, and he was so drunk, he didn't even know where he was, and he was beaten up, he'd been in a fight. So his mom and dad got him to bed and got him to sleep, and then they went back to bed exhausted. And the dad woke up about a half hour later, and the mom wasn't in bed. He went to find her. She was sitting on the edge of the bed of her son, wiping his forehead with a towel. She looked up at her husband with tears in her eyes, and she said, he won't let me love on him when he's awake. I, I want to ask you something, family. When you're sinning, and we all do, and you know it, and we all do, how do you picture God in that moment? Do you see him coming after you with a stick or a whip to let you have it? Do you picture God uh, turning away in disgust and not looking at you? Because I think maybe a more accurate picture of God when you and I are sinning is actually him sitting on the edge of our bed weeping because of the heartache he sees coming because of our sin. He can see how that affair is going to devastate your family and ruin everything. 
God can see how that addiction is going to trash your body. He can see how our ego out of control is going to cause us to minimize our talent. He can see how this fascination with pornography is going to turn from habit to addiction and cost us our relationships, our marriages, and maybe our job. He can see how prejudice in our heart can cause us to lose relationships and respect from people. He can see how greed can cause us to lose family time and family life. God can see that trial that's coming in your life. And if you and I are in rebellion when it comes, and we don't have the power of His Holy Spirit living inside of us, we'll be crushed under the weight of it. And so family, the next time you're in a sin and you think about God, don't see Him coming after you with a whip or looking at you with disgust. No, He's sitting on the edge of your bed weeping over the heartache of your sin. Most of you know I grew up in a wonderful Christian home without excuse. I've told you before, I can't wait for you to meet my dad. My dad, I'm 62 years old. I've still never met a man like my dad. I loved him so much. I wanted to be like him so much. I wanted him to love me, and he did. But when I was in about the sixth grade, I was walking home with some of my friends, and we surrounded Franklin Schaus. Now, Franklin Schaus was intellectually challenged, I think is the way you say it politically correct these days. But we weren't saying that. We were calling him a retard, and we were cussing him. And we were punching him. Now, don't look at your screen at me like that. This was before I became a perfect preacher. But I want to tell you the worst part of this ordeal was the next day when I got called to the principal's office and I had to repeat all those things that I said with my dad sitting there. And my dad did not slap me. He did not yell at me. But the look of disappointment in his eyes trashed me. It crushed me and I never forgot it. And it motivated me to change. Franklin Schaus and I became good friends, and I watched his back all the way to the end of high school. Family, I'm just saying the next time you're tempted to try to rebel against God, it do you good to remember the picture of this broken-hearted Savior. It'd be good for you to see Jesus sitting on the edge of your bed weeping, hoping you come home sober, to see him hurt because of our self-destructive, embarrassing behavior. To see him that way, brokenhearted, because that's the way he is. It will motivate us to want to please him and obey. That's why First John says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. I got one last thing. I want us to see Jesus as an angry judge. And, and not just an angry judge, angry under control. Thank you. Big difference. The Bible says the next day after this triumphant entry, uh, entry Jesus went into the temple to check things out. And to say he was upset with what he found is a huge understatement. In the court of Gentiles, they had tables set up where they were exchanging money and selling animals. Now, we've talked about this before. When you came to the temple, you had to pay temple tax. Nobody had temple money. So they would exchange your money for temple money for a fee. And the exchange rate fee was unbelievable. It was criminal. Also, people came from a long way, and so they didn't bring their animals with them. They bought animals when they got there. And the people that did bring their animals had to have them inspected by the um, priest first, and they always found a flaw, so you'd have to buy another one. And the animals, unbelievable, the prices. William Barclay says they were making $5 million a year, which was a lot of money then. It's a lot of money now. 
And so you get this kind of this flea market thing going on with loud bickering and haggling over prices. And all this is going on in a place meant for worship. And when Jesus came in and saw the chaos and heard all the noise and saw all the cheating going on, he went off on these people. Verse 45, he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you've made it into a den of robbers. Now the other gospel writers give us a little more detail. Jesus made a whip and began to drive the animals and the people out with it. Turned over the tables, huge tables, money all over the floor. People diving, trying to get their money. People trying to steal their money. Birds flying all over the place. And Jesus is saying, get out of here, all of you. Now, you would think logic would say, if you were in a multi-million dollar business and some stranger walked in and tried to put you out of business, well, a few of you would grab him by the scuff of the neck and show him the door. But nobody opposed Jesus because of his identity and his authority. They ran like scared rabbits. And then we're left with this surprising picture of an angry Jesus. And we're not used to this. We don't talk much about an angry Jesus in church these days. We talk about his compassion and his mercy and his love, and rightly so. But I just want to remind you, family, there's another side of the character of Jesus, and that is he is just, he is in charge, and oh my goodness, is he fully capable of wrath. Romans 11:22 says, Consider the sternness and the kindness of God. Sternness of those who fell. Kindness to you provided that you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Carl Sandburg wrote a book about Abraham Lincoln years ago. In it, he called him a man of velvet steel. He said he could be soft and compassionate like velvet and, and hard as nails if he had to be. And I want to remind you, family, our Bible talks to us about a God who's the same way. A God who loves us and reaches out to us constantly. But if we continue to reject his grace and reject his offer and reject his authority, we're going to run into a bad day one day. In fact, Revelation 19.11 says that Jesus is coming back one day, and when he does, he won't be riding a donkey. No, the Bible says he'll be riding a great white horse to bring war and judgment against the nations. Romans 2.5 says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. I'm just telling you, if we're not careful, sometimes... We get this idea that God can't be loving like we know he is and punish people at the same time. But we've got to remember he is perfect just. And that's what justice is. You reward right and you punish wicked. I'm almost done. One last story. Angie and I have been watching um, a reality show. I mean, we're desperate like everybody else. We're watching this thing called Lone Star Law, and it's game wardens in the state of Texas. And in one of the episodes last week, this young kid shot a deer, and uh, when he began to measure the rack, it wasn't wide enough, and so he turned himself in. And the game wardens showed up, and they were, first of all, amazed and very appreciative that this kid had turned himself in. But uh, by the end of the day, when it was over, they still gave him a ticket. Now, the ticket was for $26 instead of $500, but they said at the end of this thing, the law's the law. And God has established the law, too. His law says very plainly, if you sin, you die. The wages of sin is death. And we've all sinned. That's why we're celebrating Palm Sunday. 
That's why our little kids were waving leaves. That's why we're celebrating, oh my goodness, next week, Easter Sunday. Because God took it a step further and he said, I'm going to send my son to the planet to die for your sins so you don't have to carry the consequences of breaking the law. So if we just trust in him, he forgives our sin. And that's why we sing Amazing Grace around here with smiles on our faces. But if on the other hand, if we continue to exploit his offer of grace, refuse to acknowledge his identity and his authority and lordship, if we insist on being judged on our own merit, you and I are going to walk into trouble one day. And it's not because God doesn't love us. Oh my goodness, we know better than that. It's just that the law is the law. And the evidence is overwhelming against us. And if we continue to live under the law instead of under grace, we condemn ourselves. Everybody knows John 3.16. For God so loved the world. You remember what John 3.17 says. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in the Son is not condemned. Whoever does not believe in the Son stands condemned already because he did not believe in God's one and only Son. We're going to take some communion together, family, which is an amazing deal. I just want to tell you this morning, you don't have to read any magazine article to find out who Jesus is or was. I can tell you straight up. Jesus is life. Jesus is life to the fullest. Jesus is the only way. He is the truth. He's a life of meaning. He's a life of forgiveness. He gives a life full of the Spirit to anyone who would choose to acknowledge He's King of kings and Lord of lords. He's a compassionate Savior and will be a loving judge on that day. So if you're watching this morning and you've been putting this thing off and you've not accepted Jesus as your person, Lord and Savior, when I'm done praying, you call me right now. 3276549 and we're going to fix this. You do not want to be living under the law, especially these days. For the rest of us, as we walk down there and gather around together at home, celebrate the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, knowing that he is such a humble king, such a broken-hearted savior, and such a just judge. Taking communion is going to be an easy thing this morning, isn't it? Jesus, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you so much for making this way for us. I mean, we'd be straight to hell for each one of us. If the wages of sin is death, we're all in trouble. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we celebrate Palm Sunday. We sing, hail him, hail him. We will not sing, nail you. We will sing, praise you glorify you and thank you for all you've done for us we're remembering you Jesus and thanking you in your precious name Amen